So Father in heaven, we begin here where Eric finished, that you would snatch some from the fire and maybe many from the fire through faithful elders, pastors in local churches, through their congregations, who would find the biblical balance on what it means to have an appropriate concern for what outsiders and unbelievers think and testify. So would you give us much grace here? Father, we are dealing with complexities, with tensions that all of us walk through, and I pray that you would give us guidance and clarity in our local context, in our pluralities of leadership, for the glory of Christ and the good of your people and the adding to your people from the world. Snatch them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I take it that this session in this track called Ministry in the World is supposed to push the other way. Um, means to push us back into the world. So Stephen was assigned to address the chaos and the confusion, and Eric, the sexual revolution. And both of these, you might say, begin with our being of the world and our thinking about how we can live and minister in a way that is not of the world. And now, in this session, we start off with the force going the other way. As Christians, as pastors, we are not of the world. And we have been sent back in to snatch some from the world. This is how Jesus prayed in John 17. That's the force of his prayer in John 17. The world has hated them, he prays about his disciples, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, he says, but that you keep them from the evil one. Keep them from the snare of the devil. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, Father. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. John 17, 14 to 18. Thank you. So you hear the direction of Jesus' prayer. Different direction. Instead of saying, they're in the world, help them not be of the world, he says, they're not of the world. Help them as I send them back in with my commission, with the fellowship of other Christians, with the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus doesn't just play defense. He goes on the offensive, big time marches on the gates of hell to snatch some back, which in its own way is the thrust of the final elder qualification in 1 Timothy 3, 7. So we're going to look at well thought of by outsiders. I don't know if you guys have come across Bob Yarbrough's 2018 commentary on the letters to Timothy and Titus. It's fantastic like a manual for pastoral ministry. I'd recommend it. This is what Yarbrough has to say about 1 Timothy 3, 7. Paul assumes that there will be a live connection between those inside and those outside the church. In settings where church communities or their members have grown isolated from outsiders, 
This verse is a reminder that social separation, for which there is some justification in Paul's references to a holy people, saints, 12 times. This verse is a reminder that social separation can be overdone and detrimental. So as we take up 1 Timothy 3.7, it might be good to acknowledge that for some of us, this is a pretty unexpected qualification. This is surprising. Hopefully, if we, when we hear that pastor elders must be able to teach, we think, yes, they must. It's critical. Not a drunkard. Of course. Not violent. Uh, yes, please. Not quarrelsome. Hmm. Okay. That sounds freshly relevant now in a way that maybe it didn't a few years ago. But well thought of by outsiders? I mean, hold on. Does this mean that outsiders get to have a say about who leads the local church? If we didn't already know what was coming in, in verse 7, if we hadn't already seen it before, would we ever guess this would be there? Some of us might have assumed the opposite, in fact. That the collective disdain of unbelievers would be a great badge of honor and would show what a significant weapon a man is in the cause of Christ. Now clearly, we have a place in Christianity for holy disdain for what outsiders think. Holy, H-O-L-Y. Holy disdain for what outsiders think. Romans 1.18 tells us that unrighteous men suppress the truth of God as creator, as sustainer, all the more that he would speak in the scriptures and that he would redeem in Christ, in the gospel. We know this. We shouldn't be surprised when the world is the world. In fact, it's the words of Christ himself that best prepare us not to be well thought of by outsiders. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecu persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely against you on my account. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Woe to you when all speak well of you. Words of Jesus. So let's make this clear. The world crucified the one whom we confess as Lord. Outsiders martyred his apostles one after another. Surely then we might resign ourselves to put very little stock in what outsiders think, especially what they think of pastors. I mean, pastors together are the teachers of Christian truth and those who lead together the church. However, get this, 1 Timothy 3, 7, the culminating qualification in 1 Timothy 3, for pastor elders in the local church. And it's not like the first century was easier. 
Of the apostolic voices, the apostle Paul has the most to say about outsiders. We could talk Peter too. Won't have time for Peter. Just focus on Paul. So let me try to capture here four categories, four ways that Paul talks about outsiders in his letters. Try to capture how Paul would have us orient toward outsiders. And we'll come back under the fourth point and get back to 1 Timothy 3, 7. Okay? So four orientations on outsiders from the Apostle Paul in his letters. Number one, associate with outsiders. Paul first mentions outsiders, 1 Corinthians 5, 9, and clarifies that his previous instructions to the Corinthians that they not associate with sexually immoral people did not mean the immoral of the world, he says, but those in the church. He was not instructing them to separate from outsiders, but from the one who bears the name of brother, yet remains in unrepentant sin. 1 Corinthians 5.11. And so he says in verses 12 to 13, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among your midst. To be true to the church and to be true to the world, we judge within the church on clear sin issues. And all the while, a la Romans 14, not judging each other on items of mere personal preference. But as Paul lays this burden on us in the church to judge those inside the church, he lifts another burden. He says, God judges those outside. In Christ, we are liberated from the need to pronounce judgment on the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. 1 Corinthians 5.10. Rather, we happily and carefully associate with outsiders, seeking to be a means of their redemption by exposing them to the gospel of Christ and demonstrating its counterintuitive fruit in our lives. And as pastors and as fathers, we kindly and very clearly warn our families not to be like outsiders. We make sure that the decided influence in our associations with outsiders flows from us to the outsiders, not vice versa. So associate with outsiders. Number two, be aware of outsiders. Paul reckons with outsiders again in 1 Corinthians 14. And this time the context is corporate worship. And far from ignoring outsiders, or planning the gathering in such a way as to intentionally estrange them, Paul wants to engage them, to welcome them, because he wants to win them to repentance from their sin and faith in Jesus. Now, to be sure, Paul does not instruct the church to orient its worship to outsiders, but only to keep them in mind when considering the intelligibility of the corporate gathering. 
Rather than the <coughs> indecipherable terms of tongue speaking, Paul would have the church speak prophetically in its public gatherings. That is, words that are understandable and clear to all. So he asks, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? 1 Corinthians 14, 16. In other words, Paul has a kind of evangelistic hope. It's verses 23 to 25 of 1 Corinthians 14. If the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? Brothers, this is not something we're striving to do. We're not striving to appear out of our minds. We might appear out of our minds to some people, and we'll stand up for that if it's right, but we're not pursuing that we look like we're out of our minds. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So associate with outsiders. Be aware of outsiders. We might even say welcome outsiders. Third, be alert to outsiders. Beyond 1 Corinthians, we find Paul's, what do we call this? Pronounced concern for the public reputation of the gospel in the pastoral epistles? You really should reckon with this. Whether it's the conduct of widows, this is 1 Timothy 5.14, or slaves, 1 Timothy 6.1, Titus 2.10, or young women, Titus 2.5, Paul would have Christians seek in everything, he says, to adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior, Titus 2.10, and not bring any justifiable reviling on the name, teaching, or word of God. 1 Timothy 6.1, Titus 2.5. He would have Christians be concerned, as, as Stephen quoted, Titus 3.2, to show perfect courtesy to all people. Amazingly relevant reminder. And care that our good works are excellent and profitable for people, Titus 3.8, within the church and outside. It, it's a striking theme in the letters of Timothy and Titus. It matters to Paul, and it matters to Jesus. We could go to Peter and show how it matters to Peter that we walk properly before outsider. That's 1 Thessalonians 4.12. Christ expects his church, in the power of his spirit, to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. Colossians 4, 5, and 6. So walk properly, talk properly. It's interesting that he moves from outsiders to speech in Colossians 4. We'll come back to that. So associate with outsiders, be aware of outsiders, be alert to outsiders. And the number four, said so we come back to the elder qualification, ask about outsiders. So now we come back to Paul's own explanation of this surprising qualification 
at the tail end of the list in 1 Timothy 3. Let me offer three observations about verse 7, which is, it's the one standalone sentence here of the qualifications. You got the aspiration clause in verse 1, 2 to 6 is one sentence with, I count, 13 qualifications. And then finally, you got the standalone one sentence, verse 7, that brings it to a close. So here's three observations about this qualification for pastor elder in the local church. Number one, the qualification presses us toward specifics. It moves us toward specifics here in some very important ways. And the ESV, which I assume and, and hope most of you have, ESV says he must be well thought of by outsiders. A more literal rendering would be, but it is also necessary to have a good witness from outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and a trap of the devil. Have a good witness. So note the, note the difference here. To have a good witness from outsiders pushes us toward specific outsider, what do you say, testimonies, witnesses, not just some general amorphous sense of what they may be thinking or may not be thinking, what's in their heads or not, but it pushes us toward what's their testimony? What are they saying? And it might even inspire us to ask them what they think. Ask them about it. If a man is candidating for the position of pastor elder in a local church, ask a few associates, those who work with him or live near him, or maybe they've played with him, or he's coached with them, or he went to school with them. A wise council of elders might check some references and solicit testimonies from flesh and blood associates outside the church who have known the candidate well in real life situations. And mark this, a good witness from outsiders means not just the absence of a bad witness, but more positively, an actual good witness. He is to have a good witness from those outside the church, which it gets at that live connection between those inside and those outside the church. Is a candidate's or a sitting pastor's social separation overdone and detrimental? Does he know many or any outsiders? Another question we might ask is whether there's anything in the Titus 1 list that corresponds to this outsider focus in verse 7 of the 1 Timothy 3 list. And we do find above reproach twice in Titus, which is related to, similar. Above reproach also leads the list in 1 Timothy 3. And it would be worth pondering how many of these elder attributes, especially the negative ones, will be evident to outsiders, not just fellow insiders. So think about not arrogant. I'm going to pick up on that. Or quick-tempered. Or a drunkard. Or violent. Or greedy for gain. But beyond those, we might point to the specifics in Titus 1.8. Hospitable and lover of good. Both on that phila root. Hospitable meaning, literally, lover of strangers, lover of foreigners. And 
lover of good. Back to back. Hospitable, hospitable, of course, lover of strangers, lover of outsiders, we could say. Jesus commends in a very significant place in Matthew 25 at the final judgment, the place of stranger love. Paul reminds Gentile Christians that we were once strangers to the covenants of promise. Ephesians 2, now we've been brought near as members of God's household. Hebrews eleven thirteen. Even now in this age, we are strangers and exiles. We have been strangers to Christ. And in being brought near to him, we have newly become strangers to this world. So we know about being strangers. We know what it's like to be in that seat and what it's like to be welcomed by divine hospitality. We want to be an extension of that. So too, that lover of good qualification in Titus has a kind of outward impulse that relates to moving toward and acting honorably among outsiders. Lovers of good are men who are wide and warm-hearted. They are, we might say, maturely magnanimous. They believe in good. They look for good among insiders and outsiders alike. They do good, and they genuinely love the good. Don't just move from one hate to another. First and foremost, love some things, and let hate be a secondary function that flows from proper loves. They demonstrate the broad hearts and capacious, expansive souls that in time become bracing evidence of a sinner's supernatural encounter with God himself in Christ. So again, the qualification is not simply well thought of in kind of a general hypothetical sense, but have a good witness from outsiders, which presses us to ask about specifics. And we might just ask ourselves at this point, do I have a good witness from outsiders? Could I find one? Do I know multiple outsiders well enough, whether neighbors or associates in some other field, that they could give a good witness on my behalf? Am I making investments in the places where I live, play, work, to serve the needs of others in my town and city? to be personally known by some individual outsiders? It just presses us into specifics. Number two then, the reason is to avoid disgrace. And it's worth lingering over this a little bit, not let it go by too fast. Paul gives us his explanation for including well thought of by outsiders. He says, so that the pastor elder may not fall into disgrace. So. Note two distinct realities there. First, you've got the life leading up to being a pastor and the life outside the functioning of a pastor. And then you've got, secondarily, or secondly, the possibility of one of the church's pastors, while in the office, falling into public disgrace. Two different things. Reputation beforehand, public disgrace that comes as a pastor. Now, Paul's concern with disgrace, or language here also is reproach, 
is surely not a condemning of all possible disgrace, whatever the terms. Elsewhere, this term for disgrace or reproach refers to what Jesus bore for us at the cross. Romans 15, quoting Psalm 69. Or, in Hebrews, three times, it refers to the righteous reproach, or we might call it gospel reproach, that Christians bear when suffering for Jesus' sake. Hebrews 10, 11, 13. A question then we might ask about any public reproach or disgrace that a pastor elder endures is, is this the reproach Jesus endured? Is it gospel reproach? Is this then a necessary disgrace because Christ and his truth is the issue? Or Thank you. is this an unnecessary disgrace because the pastor himself has failed the truth or failed to exercise wisdom or failed to conduct himself Christianly or failed to obey the commands of Christ himself? In other words, 1 Timothy 3, 7 highlights, is this unrighteous reproach? Is it disgrace from outsiders that is deserved because of foolish and sinful attitudes and actions in the church's perspective or current leader or leaders? So practically then, if there is some disgrace related to a pastoral candidate, let's say, a key question for us to ask would be, why is this reproach? Why is this disgrace falling on him? Is it because of his own folly, just as much on Christ's terms as the world's? Is he a fool for Jesus' sake? or a fool in Christ's eyes as well? Is he speaking truth, but in unchristian ways? What if a pastor is clean of disgrace when he comes into the office, when he's ordained, when he's called, and then he begins to acquire a worsening reputation while a pastor, or all at once or something, Stephen, in Acts 6, might be an interesting example for us. Something to consider about a pastor in office being with public disgrace being brought upon him. Do you know what the first ever qualification for office in the church is? First ever one given in the New Testament. Acts 6.3, early church. It's good reputation. Seventh elder quali- that fifteenth uh, elder qualification, chapter three, verse seven. This is Acts six three. Brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, well spoken of, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So Stephen had a good reputation when he became one of the seven. And how long did that last? Probably not very long. So what is the church to do then when outsiders who rose up to dispute with Stephen secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God? 
The church knew what Stephen actually said, what he meant. If they didn't, they could just ask him. This is clearly gospel reproach for Jesus' sake. And so you stand by your officer. Acts 6.13 says, the witnesses who came against him were false witnesses. Now, office in the church, no one is entitled to office. So there may be a difference between standing by your officer when disgraced falsely in office and making a man who has been disgraced into a new officer. Something to consider for elders and congregations. In Matthew 5.11, Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. And then he says, falsely on my account. If the reproach heaped on a pastor elder is false and on Jesus' account, the outside witnesses do not carry the day. Stand by your man. So the qualification presses us to ask about specifics. The reason is to avoid public disgrace, which matters to Paul. And then finally, we ask about that last phrase in verse 7. What is that last phrase in verse 7? This is the last point. It's number three. The devil delights to disgrace the church. The end of verse 7 says, so that he may not fall into disgrace and a trap of the devil. So two nouns here. Connected by the word and. You got disgrace and you got trap of the devil. How do the two relate? Does it mean that the devil's trap is a second and additional reality beyond the disgrace? So it's like two stages. So first, he's publicly disgraced. And then, because he's publicly disgraced, he falls into a trap. So he sins further because of that public disgrace, whether it was righteous or unrighteous, that'd be a two-stage approach to the and, disgrace and trap. Or is the snare a second way of saying the first? That disgracing the pastor is the devil's trap. You can tell, I think that's what it is. <laughs> we could talk more about that in the panel session. I think that makes the most sense in the immediate context. More broadly, we go to verse 6, but let me finish up for now. Public disgrace is the devil's special trap, his frequent scheme. He draws it up, he designs it, he works the angles all the time to publicly disgrace pastors. That's exactly what he wants. Publicly disgraced pastors. And the church is with them. A disgraced pastor who is reproached by outsiders, not on false or gospel terms, but on the moral terms of Christianity itself, is a trap Satan loves to exploit. Just imagine him squealing with delight as the Trap shuts on the pastor's foot. And with it, he kills three birds with one stone. He renders the pastor himself 
less effective or totally ineffective. He injures or torpedoes the faith of some insiders and he solidifies unbelief in outsiders who he wants to keep from the gospel. He wants outsiders to remain just that, outside the church and in his clutches. And so the devil loves it when Christian leaders of all people give outsiders valid, reasonable cause for disgrace and love to use modern media to magnify it. So again, it is one thing to be a fool for Jesus, but it is quite another thing to be foolish just as much on heaven's terms as the world's. Brothers, let's know the devil's devices and beware his schemes. He tempts leaders in the church and aspiring leaders into the kinds of sins that would bring reproach on them and the church. So beware the perennial temptations of money, sex, and power. And beware the new field of public temptations in our generation that many, sadly, are not yet taking as seriously as we will learn in the future. Online self-disgrace with worldly outrage, hot takes, and rash comments that you didn't learn from the New Testament. And we might take special warning as pastors, as men for whom words come so easy. It's a danger for us. Many of us pastors, words come so easy. It's not hard to fill 30 minutes. It's hard to not make it an hour. In previous generations, Satan would disgrace pastors as others spread the word about their sins. Today, he just adds to his schemes the delicious strategy that pastors can just directly disgrace themselves with public online folly. So to be clear, the world does not choose the church's leaders. The thoughts and opinions of outsiders are not ultimate, but they do matter. We ignore them to our own peril, and we should not <coughs> presume disgrace as a mark of faithfulness. To the question, should we care what outsiders think, the biblical answer is, Clearly, just as much yes, if no. Actually, more so yes. The no's are exceptions to the rules. And there are no's. We've talked about the no's. There are exceptions to the rule. It's not what we pursue. But the most significant is why. We want outsiders to be saved. We want to snatch some from the world. We want both to keep the believing sheep in and win more from the world, <clears throat> like Paul did. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Remember, Paul's not writing this in the 1950s. Okay? Paul's writing this in the first century. 
Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. In the end, outsiders matter to us because they matter to Jesus. And he has other sheep, he says, that he means to bring in. And he delights to make outsiders into friends and to brothers, as he has done with us, has he not? And we hope and pray that there are many in our cities, many in our towns who are his, that he means to bring in through us in our churches. Brothers, such were all of us. But we have been brought in. And good pastors know firsthand that Christ loves to take frail, former outsiders and make us his instruments for bringing in more and for leading his church with such hearts and dreams and prayers. Let's pray that. Father in heaven, I pray that would be true first and foremost of my life in church and for these brothers in this room. We want to be instruments, as Eric prayed, of snatching some back from the world. We are not of the world in Christ. We are not of the world as pastors, let's hope. And yet we have a commission to be sent back in to rescue some. So Father, would you keep the sheep under our watch? And would you bring the lost into your fold under our watch and care and teaching? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.